0: Welcome to another Sierra Bible Church class. What did Jesus teach about the Holy Spirit? Wayne Hoag begins a five-part series answering this very question. Let's tune into part one. The journey we're going on is an exploration of what it is that Jesus personally said concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So let's start with his words, John chapter 16. We're going to read about four or five passages of scripture here just to set the context for our time together. John 16, we're going to begin reading with verse number one. Jesus speaking the night of his betrayal. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority... But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then chapter 15, just back up a few verses. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Back up one more chapter to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then Acts chapter 1. Like I said, so far these are all red letter verses, and they are also in chapter 1 of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Again, Luke, the physician, author of the book of Luke, refers to that book in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering with many proofs It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Before we take off here, I want to begin by stating some facts about the Holy Spirit. And I know you all know this, but every once in a while we need to be reminded. Peter said in his second epistle, chapter one, I consider it right as long as I remain in this flesh to stir you up by way of reminder. So a lot of this is going to be a reminder that we're going to be covering. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. Okay, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. And as a person, he has intellect, will, and emotions. He knows, he thinks, he hears, he wills, he loves, he feels affection and compassion. He can be grieved. He speaks and performs any act of what personality is capable. Everything that the Holy Spirit does... Is in complete agreement and perfect harmony with the Father and with the Son. And according to Jesus, His ministry is fivefold He convicts, He helps, He guides, He teaches, and He empowers. One of the symbols of the Holy Spirit is a dove, and it's a very fitting symbol. Because in flight, the dove has great endurance and great stamina, or we could say power. But the dove is also among the gentlest of all birds, and he can be easily grieved. Easily wounded. So, Ephesians warns us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Concerning our ability to grieve the Holy Spirit, A.W. Tozer said, our only real danger is that we may grieve the blessed Holy Spirit into silence and then be left to the mercy of our intellects. We will have the bush pruned and trimmed, but in the bush there will be no fire. And of course, the bush that he's talking about was the burning bush that Moses out in the Sinai desert stood before where God spoke to him and called him to go, to, go into Egypt and bring his people out. This is in Exodus chapter 3. Here's Tozer's greatest fear. And Tozer died in 1963. If he could see where we are today... You know, I've been discipling a group of businessmen in Reno throughout the months of 2023. And uh, I went back to a book from 1983 from Francis Schaeffer called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And the warnings that Francis Schaeffer threw down in 1983, he didn't know the half of it. He knew something was coming if the church didn't shape up and begin to take God's word seriously. And uh, both of these men, Tozer and Schaefer, spoke at a time, and that was a time before, well, for, for Tozer anyway, abortion. Abortion was happening when Schaefer was on the planet. But we've had gay marriage, we've had wokeism, we've had the trans movement and all this stuff. They couldn't have imagined where this was all going to go. But here was Tozer's fear in 1963. He feared that the church would tend the bush, but that she would do it in her own power. And today, in many ways, the church has relied more on personality, on promotion, and on programs than upon the power that fell in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, or the power that spoke to Moses from the burning bush and caused him to remove his sandals because he was on holy ground. In many ways, the church has imitated the world. Sought to be popular. Has embraced cheap substitutes for the power of the Holy Spirit. Has had to promote herself because the drawing power of the Holy Spirit's not in her midst. She's manufactured cheap delights this substitute for the joy of the Lord. And here I want to pause and just say this. I believe with all my heart that entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. Leonard Ravenhill said to me one time, he said, Wayne, the epitaph of America will be she entertained herself to death. And we live right at the the mega center of it, don't we? Here in Truckee on the beautiful shores of Lake Tahoe. I believe entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy because because the joy of the Lord isn't filling our hearts. We're easily bored. So we have to fill every spare moment with activity, with noise, and with thrills. You don't believe me? then turn off all of your gizmos for a week, your television, your PlayStation, your iPad, your computer, and see how quickly you're climbing the walls. I read a a statement today by Blaise Pascal, and he says, we do not know how to be alone. We do not know how to be alone in silence and quiet in the presence of God. It's my prayer that before our time together is done that we'll be removing our sandals and falling on our faces before the one who is holy, holy, holy. And that this blessed third person of the Trinity will be welcomed as never before in your life, in my life, and the collective life of this church. You see, God has uniquely created each and every one of you. He's placed you at this time in history. You are on the stage right now. He's put you here to impact the world, to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he has given the Holy Spirit to equip us each for the task. That is at hand. Back to John sixteen. John sixteen five. But now I am going to him who sent me. When the Jews crucified Jesus, they believed that they were serving God. Much as verse 2 of chapter 16, Jesus is saying this to his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. And that's exactly what they, with Jesus. They thought they were offering a service to God. When Saul of Tarsus was out persecuting Christians, he was doing it with a heart full of zeal for Jehovah God. He saw this new Christian movement as something that was polytheistic. And he was going for the purity of the faith of monotheism until he met the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and God the Son on the road on the way to Damascus. Some 50 days after Christ's crucifixion, burial and resurrection and ascension, the Apostle Peter preached the first full gospel message and something dramatic happened. He's preaching along and his last lines in his message are, and let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? Think about it. Those who two months earlier, in the same streets, crying, crucify him, crucify him, are now convicted of their sin. Brothers, what shall we do? How does this happen? What is it that gives man a sense of his sin? Many years ago Sandy and I attended a Billy Graham crusade in Denver's Mile High Stadium. Each night hundreds of people moved in response to the altar call. As I watched, as I you know, I, I've watched Billy Graham since I was that high on TV because my mom and dad were his biggest fans. And so if he was on TV, everything stopped at our house. But this was different. We're in the stadium now. He's the guy down on the platform speaking, and we're surrounded by about 60,000 buddies. 60,000 of our closest friends. And as I watched, I was pondering the phenomenon that I was witnessing when the altar call was given. What was happening? Well, first of all, let me say this, and believe me, I love Billy Graham, but I've heard better preachers. Hey, the truth of the matter is the man only had one message. (laughs) It was the same one every time he spoke it. It just was pockmarked with current events that his wife was digging out of magazines and newspapers for him. But it always ended the same, didn't it? And one night, Cliff Barrows comes and, Just as I am without one plea. And all of a sudden people start standing and moving. And I'm looking at this, and you don't see this on TV. I felt something. It was like a wave that was blowing across the stadium. It was like a gentle breeze that was blowing across that arena and that crowd. And what I became aware of, it wasn't that people in this stadium everywhere at once all stood and headed for the altar, they moved with the breeze. And when the wind of the Holy Spirit blew over that section of the stadium, this group, would, this section, would stand and start to move. And then this one—it wasn't all at once and going. It was incrementally. And then every once in a while, I'd feel it again, as the breath of God blew once again across that place. What is it? that causes men and women to respond to a 2,000-year-old message. It is God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Oh my, how that word has gone out of fashion. Please, Pastor, don't tell people that they're sinners. It makes them feel bad. I've had this discussion with some people recently. You see, today, too many sermons are being preached that call people to be saved, but they're leaving out the saved from what? And you can't be saved unto something unless you are saved from something. And why do we need to be saved? We don't need Jesus as a piece of optional equipment like an air conditioner in your car if you live in Phoenix. No. We need to understand who we are and what we are without Christ in our standing before God. Because Jesus did not die to make bad people good. Jesus did not die to make good people better. Jesus died to make dead people live. Without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's being left out of so much gospel. I listen to some of these guys on TV, and I will not mention names to protect the guilty that they preach this sermon and there's not an ounce of gospel in it. There's not an ounce of sin. There's not an ounce of the blood of cross and everything. And then they give an altar call at the end and I go, why? <laughs> you haven't even built yourself a foundation for these thing, people to understand. No, we preach the gospel because Jesus died to make dead people live. And we were all at one time dead in our trespasses and sin. And the only thing we were worthy of was the wrath of God. Without Jesus, we're dead. We're the recipients of his wrath. How many? That includes everybody sitting in your chair, Richard. (laughs) For all have sinned. The one standing behind this pulpit. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no not one. How many righteous people? None. And Ecclesiastes, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. You know, though, this is bad news. It gets worse. (laughs) For the wages of sin is death. Death, the, the Greek word means... The misery of the soul arising from sin, which begins on earth but continues after the death of the body in hell. The wages of sin is death. It's separation from our Creator. People want to get technical. They want to know, well, what is sin? Yeah, you've heard this story. Well, I'm basically a good guy. I've never murdered anybody. And it's like, well, come on in. You know, as long as you haven't murdered anybody, the gates are wide open. Right? No. The word sin is an old archery term. Taken from an old archery. It simply means to miss the mark. These are all the arrows that you've been shooting in your own strength. They all fall short. And what is it that we miss? What is it we fall short of? Keeping God's law as found in the Ten Commandments. Now, when Jesus was on this earth, he didn't perfectly keep the Mosaic law and all the Torah. He kept the Ten Commandments. He did not keep the tradition of the elders. You know, he was always on the wrong side of the Pharisees as far as they were concerned. But he perfectly kept these. And what are they? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. Now, disobeying any one of these is sin... But here's what James tells us, and he, gives, he puts us in a real pickle here. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You see, many read the Ten Commandments years on end and feel no guilt at all. And then one day, in a moment of God's choosing, the implications of that list pierce the heart. Just like the people on the day of Pentecost. If this is true, then brothers, what should we do? Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Jesus didn't say these words, so I just want to say that before somebody says, well, you said that. So, Isaiah chapter 6. This is one of those passages of Scripture. You need to do a history lesson before you start because King Uzziah was an incredible king. He was one of the good kings. And when he died, it broke the heart of a nation. And that's another story for another day. But Isaiah starts off his, his story here. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There are two things happening in this passage that we need to see. In a nanosecond, Isaiah is made aware of the holiness of God and at the same moment, the dark abyss of his own heart. It's a double vision. He sees the holy, holy, holy one high and lifted up. He looks into the abyss of his own heart. And both are the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. That's what Isaiah is feeling here. But remember, it's not our righteousness of which the Holy Spirit convicts us. It's God's righteousness laid alongside of our sin. There's a comparison going on here. There's a comparison going on here. And the next thing that happens is, Isaiah is convicted that he is under God's judgment. Isaiah was a prophet of God, and if, go, go to your concordance and put in the word woe, W-O-E, and see how many times that is used. Woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. Isaiah called the prophet's doom on his own head. He is writhing on the temple floor, praying that the rueful cave in and hide him from the gaze of this thrice holy being who's sitting on the throne. Woe is me, and some of our modern translations miss it. I think the King James says, I am undone. New American Standard says, I am ruined. This, this version says, I am lost. It literally means I am coming apart at the seams. I am disintegrating under the gaze of God, because I am a sinner. He was convicted of his sin, of God's righteousness, and that he deserved judgment. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Isaiah, even though Romans 3.23 had not yet been written, Isaiah here is overwhelmed by the fact of the wages of sin. He got it. He got it. He's overwhelmed. And you can read the rest of it. He doesn't get left there. You know, God has a way to purge his sin. And what's so incredible about it, after he purges his sin, Isaiah is privy to a conversation between the Trinity. They're over here in the corner talking and Isaiah is just trying to find his feet again. He's clean now. His lips have been touched with that holy coal from that burning altar. And the Trinity is talking with each other and they're saying, who will go for us? Who will go for us? And all of a sudden Isaiah, the man writhing on the floor here a few minutes ago, whoop, here am I, Lord. Send me. And he didn't say, here I am, Lord. He said, here am I. One denotes availability, the other one denotes location. He belonged to God from that point on. I, that's not even part of my notes, but I didn't want to leave you hanging with Isaiah writhing on the floor. <laughs> the night... That the Holy Spirit broke my heart with the reality of my sin before God, I knew beyond a shadow of doubt that I was lost and that I would stand before the judgment seat of God in my sin. I was thinking this afternoon, you know, I worked in the operating room at Portsmouth Naval Hospital, and I don't know if you know, but hospitals have drugs in them. And uh, I took some home one night, and I was home one afternoon all by myself. So I don't. Sandy was probably at work. I was, the operating room was done, and I was home, and I had some amyl nitrate capsules. And amyl nitrate is a very powerful uh, vasodilator, and guys would you know get a few beers in them, they go, and then snap an Amy and take a snort. Well, I didn't have any beers in me. And I sat down in my living room and I snapped that capsule and took a snort and my head instantly was as big as this room. And I could hear my heart beating in my ears. And I knew I was going to die. And in that moment I did not cry out to God to save me. I just cried out don't let me die. And pretty soon everything subsided and I, I didn't die. I didn't die but I treated God at that point like Burt Reynolds in the movie The End remember he's going to commit suicide and so he swims out into the ocean he gets way out there and all of a sudden he's chickening out and so he starts going back and the waves are against him and now he's afraid he is going to die and so he's promising God everything but the moon as he's swimming in to shore and when he finally gets to the sands and starts going up he goes And that's what I did to God that day. I did not pray to be saved that day. I prayed not to die. Because I knew in my heart where this heart was. I understood the truth of this, having been raised in the church. For we must all, how many? Appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I knew where my heart was, and I knew what condition I would be standing before him if I died in that moment. Now, a few months later, Sandy and I both, together, surrendered our lives to Christ and asked him to save us. It was a different story that day. Things changed. One of my favorite Bible teachers who passed away within the last year, Jack Hayford, pastor of Church on the Way in Van Nuys, California, for so many years. The Holy Spirit does not primarily work through sensational displays, but by the melting of the heart. And that's what conviction is. I am a sinner. God is holy and I am under judgment because God through the Holy Spirit has melted my heart and made these three things not just words on a page but reality in my heart. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when that awakening comes, we too will cry out with the crowd at Jerusalem, what shall we do with the crowd at the Billy Graham crusade? Or like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. On the cross, Jesus paid in full the penalty that was due for your sin and mine. Was it that we deserved? The wages of sin is death. But Jesus on the cross took your sin and my sin and your shame and my shame and paid the price for all of us. And how do we know that God accepted his sacrifice on my behalf? He rose from the dead. That's, That's the proof of the pudding. That's the proof of the pudding. His grave is empty. That is proof that God accepted that blood sacrifice on your behalf and my behalf. And somewhere along the way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and He convicts us and and He shows us that when He comes, He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And He did that in my life. He convicted me of my sin. He showed me the righteousness of God and the judgment that I faced if I did not embrace God's answer for me. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he that knew no sin became my sin that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, I've done a lot of horse trading and a lot of swapping over the years, but that's the deal of deals. What did he get from me? My black robe. What did I get from him? His white robe of righteousness. Because... He convicted me. He showed me my sin alongside of His righteousness. He showed me what waited out there for me if I did not embrace His provision. On the cross, He took my judgment. He took your judgment. And now He offers to those who will come the gift of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. But one must come. One must repent. There's another thing that is sadly absent in a lot of our preaching today. A, a willful turning from our sin and walking in His direction. And so tonight, that's where we end. That's the very first thing Jesus tells us. He says, when He comes, He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Thank you for listening to this part of the class. We'll keep you posted each session as they are available. We hope God uses them to grow your relationship with Him, and we hope to see you soon.